Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Today for the first edition of Memphis Metropolis, it's my pleasure to welcome Steve Lockwood. Steve, until recently, was Executive Director of Fraser CDC. We've known each other a long time. So I asked him to come on the show today to talk a little bit about his career in community development and specifically his experiences working in the Fraser neighborhood. So thanks for coming on, Steve. My pleasure. How exciting. New radio show, new, new radio station. All that, exactly. I'm excited too. Steve, you've been at Fraser CDC a long time, but your career in community development goes back farther in that. In fact, you might say that you were involved as the CDC industry, CDCs meaning Community Development Corporations, as that was really getting started in Memphis. So without going you know, back into the archives. Talk a little bit about how you got into community development with VECA and then some of your other work leading up to Fraser. Yeah, it's it's really true. Um, I, I got hired in 1995 to be the, the inaugural exec of the VECA CDC. And I think I didn't know what a CDC was. I think the city didn't know what a CDC was. And there's a lot of water, most of it good water under the bridge. Then, um, you know, I, I think that we've really developed an industry since then, and, and this city really started off slow. Um, I came to realize there was there were there were community development entities around the country that had been there for 20 years before we got there, but but we got there when we got there, and it was a, a nice opportunity for me. My background before that was a for-profit developer. I had experience in doing nonprofit activism and such, and so it was a really nice opportunity. I've spent 25 years, a, a combination of, of doing what I, I like to do uh, construction-wise as well as the nonprofit and community-based work. Were there other local CDCs at the time? There were. I'm going to say that none of them exist now, um, with the possible exception of uh, United Housing was a subsidiary of United Way and was just then breaking off and becoming its own community-based development corporation. So Tim Bolding and I uh, were already friends at that time, and uh, Tim, who died maybe just a few years ago, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, uh, and our capacity was incredibly low as a city. You know, all the CDCs in the, in the city would do three houses a year. You were also involved, not on staff, but as a board member for the Cooper Young Development Corporation, which no longer exists, but was instrumental in helping transform that neighborhood. Just talk a little bit about that. Well, I was. You know, I've been a resident of Cooper Young since 1976. So I I say that I was in Cooper Young before it was really Cooper Young as we know it today. Uh, So I've watched it transform. 
and that CDT was established. But it, it turns out both for Becca and Cooper Young, it's really hard to have a CDC in a, in a more arguably middle-class neighborhood and, and maybe not even as, as necessary or justified. So as that neighborhood improved and it improved so dramatically, it became ne- less necessary to have a CDC. And I told them as the exec here in, in Fraser, they were going to have a hard time competing with the likes of us who could demonstrate need and, and dynamic work a lot more easily than they could. So they faded out of the picture, as did Becca CDC, which no longer exists as well. So let's just back up for a minute and talk about what what is the purpose of a CDC and why is it more difficult to to have that as a successful model in a middle-income neighborhood? Um, well, Community Development Corporation, there are several, those words all mean something. And community, first of all, means that you come from that from that base. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, you're supposed to study your your territory, know your territory, and figure out what are the key ways in which you might intervene. And development means exactly that. Um, a, but there's a it's it's a blessing and a curse. There's a wide range of, of things that uh, CDCs can work on. So we've become in this city at this moment uh, very diverse. So there are the, they're running charter schools and they're um, opening grocery stores and they're doing a lot of different things. Um, but essentially, you look to come in and write the market in areas where the market is not functioning. So again, back to Cooper Young, you, you probably don't. You know, when a house comes up empty and abandoned in Cooper Young, somebody snatches it up and deals with it and puts it back on the market for double the price they bought it for, and they make a living, and you don't need government subsidies, and you don't need a professionally driven organization to bring in, you know, tools and skills and, and funding streams and such, because it happens on its own. Uh, neighborhoods like Fraser and, and much of North and South Memphis and plenty of other territories um the, the neighborhood's not fixing itself. So you come in to intervene and try to write the market. And that can be in commercial. It can be in, in schools and social services. Uh, it can be in housing. Traditionally, an awful lot of the work that's, that's gone on has been housing. We came into, when I came into Fraser in 02, 2002, <laughs> I, I spent the first number of weeks and months studying what's going on here. And I found there were a lot of abandoned houses. And even at that time, an inordinate a foreclosure rate, and that has become, you know, to oversimplify our focus. But in another neighborhood, because it's a community-based corporation, you might do something quite different in another neighborhood. So whether or not a neighborhood has sort of a robust market, real estate market, has a lot to do with whether you need the CDC model or how well it works, it sounds like. Yeah, but I mean, you could make the argument that in another neighborhood, maybe the Maybe the real estate market is functioning, but but I mean this may be counterintuitive, but but everybody's out of work or underemployed, and so you bring in an agency that that does employment access. You know, so it doesn't have to be housing; it very often is. Well, that's a great transition. My next question is. What made you decide to to accept the job in Fraser? I feel like you're identified with Midtown because you live in Cooper Young. You worked in Vecca. Um, Fraser is nothing like Midtown. So, what 
appealed to you about that opportunity? Well, um, there was <laughs> there was a lot of work to do here. That's a good thing. Um, I mean, in a lot of ways, it made better sense to me to to see and grasp the volume of work that was available than it did at, at VECA. Um, you know, this business in Memphis is it's got a lot of racial dynamics to it. Uh, there's no secret there. Um, and when I got here, uh, Fraser was 40% white, and it wasn't so weird for a for a middle-aged white guy to come in and and take the helm here. Um, you know, that would have been a lot more difficult for me to do, rightly or wrongly, to, to do in Orange Mount. It just would have been more challenging. This is a hard business to begin with if you throw in, you know, just additional racial obstacles, make it uh, go from hard to impossible. Um, I actually came here. They asked me to come here for 90 days to act as a transition guy, to put out several fires and to solve about three <laughs> very significant problems that they had uh, in order to try to get rolling. And after I was here for 45 days, I just figured out that um, it was a pretty good fit. And among other things, um, you know, I believe in, in CDCs having a fairly aggressive uh, advocacy-based style. And that never seems to, I've been here 18 years and boards have come and gone and members have come and gone, but I never have seemed to have um, scared the people in this neighborhood. They, they have embraced that attitude of we've got to break some eggs and we have to take some chances. Um, and we're not, we're not going to be right every single time. You do hundreds of projects and some of them work better than others. Um, it's just been a good fit for me. And, and um, as I'm slowing my career down, it's, it's really gratifying to look back on it and go, yeah, you know, this is, this has been pretty good. <laughs> well, I want to talk about um, how things have changed and what you feel like the organization, you and the board and the staff working together have accomplished. But first, explain a, a, a just a briefly about also, I feel like the neighborhood is suburban style in development. Mm -hmm. It's a lot different from Vecca or Cooper Young. Did that affect, uh, did that factor into uh, the learning curve working in a different kind of development pattern? You know, it's kind of interesting. I will get to your question, but I think when I came here, one of the few prejudices that I could identify and admit in myself was that I, I hated the suburbs. And I got my own reasons for that. I grew up on the country with my grandparents and that's suburban now and this beautiful idyllic sitting has become, you know, not very idyllic to me anymore. So I thought, oh, this is going to be rough and I'm going to hate these houses. Um, it turns out, don't hate them, uh, not most of them. And it turns out, it's it's one of those competitive advantages we have over, you know, a lot of South Memphis neighborhoods because our housing stock was built in the '60s and '70s, and it uh, while a lot of it's terribly degraded, uh, it it tends to be easier to fix and less filled up with lead and etc. Um, than than the houses built in 1912. Um, and that said, I mean, so it's it's cheaper. To, to build them and I mean to rebuild them and it turns out I like them um, they have 
most of them conventional foundations and, and genuine tongue and groove hardwood floors. And that's kind of where I start to think, oh, this is a good house. Um, and the on the business side, the affordability piece. So we're able to find houses, fix them. And even as our prices have gone up dramatically, still sell them real affordably to, to low-income working families. And it's just something that works. And it, it turns out, oh, to my surprise, I didn't expect you, but I like the houses. Well, plus, as we've discussed many times, Fraser has such nice geography. Boy, it does. It's got rolling hills and just lovely. People people don't know that. I th- a lot of times I feel like who live here. I've always enjoyed my many visits to Fraser. I, would, I feel like if you got there in 2002, you've really seen a lot, a lot of economic downturns mm-hmm. and rebounds. Of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic now. So when you got there... What was the sort of state of the neighborhood and how has it changed and how have the goals of the organization changed, if at all? So it was a low-income community that was really very integrated. And at that time, I said, I think this might be the most successfully integrated community in the city. Um but, you know, it's it's part of a, a longer downturn, as I think people know, like 10,000 other neighborhoods in the United States. We had an industrial base here, um, primarily the harvester plant, but also just across the river, the Firestone plant and some others. Um, and th- those industrial jobs went away uh, basically in the 80s and financial prospects of this neighborhood turned down and it was turning down when I got here and continued. And I, I really don't think this neighborhood has seen what I would describe as white flight. It's really seen middle class. So, and with it, a, a great upturn in, in both crime and perceptions of crime, a great upturn in, in, you know, section eight housing and um, of, of recent, you know, when I say recent, geez, I mean, probably 10, 12 years. Um, this was absolute prototype for a neighborhood to be subject to prime uh, to uh, predatory lending, and the consequence of that. And, and we knew about that in two thousand and four and such. And, and me and our deputy director Jaria Jackson talked about that, but nobody cared, quite honestly, until Wall Street started taking big hits, and then all of a sudden they cared, and they didn't really care about the residents here. But the point is that. Um, uh, we, was, we, we, as a result, had um, more foreclosures than any zip code in the state of Tennessee for about 10 years straight. And so as incomes were receding because more middle-class folks were moving out of the neighborhood and crime rates were, were, were climbing because changing demographics um, and the housing stock started to decline because of the, the foreclosures, um, that resulted in you know, genuine crash in the real estate market. So we went from, I think, 06 having an average sale price of housing for $47,000, which seems pretty low. There was a moment in 09 when the average house sold for $120,000. I remember that. Very discouraging. It was very, it was really depressing. Um, And for those of us who were in the real estate revitalization movement, geez, what are we doing wrong? Um, and, and it's taken 
all this time since '09 until now to dig out of that hole. And it, it, it's fair for us to say, and we've known this now for about two years, that we are actually digging out of that hole. We've we've now topped the average sale price that was high of 06. I know that's not saying much, but um, housing is still real affordable, but we've been rising faster than any neighborhood in the city all in all for the last three or four years. Um, so, you know, it's been actually gratifying in the long run. <laughs> you got to stick around 18 years to see that gratification, I guess. Well, I don't know what the saying is, but certainly community development work, not only is it not easy, but it's not fast. You know, there's, it's funny at, at this juncture, we've, you know, we've had some successes and we've gotten some recognition for those successes. And there's now sort of a measure of our success that there are now other neighborhoods, some of them blatantly right, right to us when we're in the room saying, well, you know, Fraser's getting all the attention and we want what Fraser's getting. And that's sort of a compliment. And you're like, it's about time. Well, yeah, we're, our, our view is we're, we're 18 year overnight successes, you know. Um, exactly. It's kind of ironic. We used to say the same thing about downtown and rightly so. We didn't say it with any malice in our heart, but it's like downtown has all these tools and things that they can do to rebuild. And, and damn it, we're just as important as downtown. We want that too. And I wouldn't say we have all of those things, but we've certainly come further and, and learned how to wield some, some tools and, and such to, to make this neighborhood change. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, I really admire the organization's success at um, encouraging families to become homeowners and spearheading that, also providing acquiring property and providing safe and secure and affordable rental housing for families. You've done a great job. And of course, I've seen your renovations and rehabs and they're beautiful. The homes are lovely, as you said. But the last several years, I've seen you work on a more strategic level and without getting too as much as I like the weeds, because I do, without getting too much into the <laughs> weeds, just just tell us a little bit about that. I mean, we call it the yellow square, but I think there's probably a more formal name because it's such an interesting approach, more targeted with um, some other community-wide objectives outside of what you want to accomplish for your neighborhood. You know, I mean, there's plenty of people from other neighborhoods who um, ask, how can we, how can we do what you guys have been doing here? How can we set this up in, you know, whatever neighborhood it is they're choosing? And and I tell them, not only you have to be diligent and smart and work real hard, you have to also be lucky. So some of these strategies are the result of luck. So, you know, early on, we kind of took whatever housing stock we could get in a major way that we got housing uh, 10 years ago was in the foreclosure process, the banks would find that the houses were pretty much worthless and costing them more to foreclose on. So they would give them to us, given stuff. And it, and it came smattered all over this neighborhood, oftentimes more in the, in the worst parts of Fraser, but because Fraser is huge. But nevertheless, if you look at our map of all the houses we've done, they're all over the dang place. But I don't know, about seven or eight years ago, we we were in a position to take advantage of the great luck of being able to get um, NSP, Neighborhood Stabilization Program, in the state of Tennessee. And it was pretty significant money. I think all in all, it was $3.7 million that, that we got on that. It was a big, big, big breakthrough for 
for us. And as I said, you have to be ready. There were agencies in town. We were small and not very experienced, but we were far enough along that they trusted us with, with what to us was just humongous money at that time. The second piece of that, they gave us extra points when you're applying for money, the devil's in, in the point matrix. And um, they gave us extra points for concentrating our work. And I had a really very bright uh, intern and I sent her out and just said, drive around all these neighborhoods and a neighborhood where things are seedy and they're fraying and there are bad houses. But most of the houses are still there. So it's not all vacant lots. Everything's not torn down. But there's still some homeowners left. There's still some strength left to where if we go in to each block and acquire two houses, then back to rating the market and the, and the uh job of the CDC. If we go in and do this and strategically invest that the neighborhood's going to fix itself. And we did a few other things with that. With the Neighborhood Preservation Act, we we sued, I think, 26 negligent owners. Every empty house that wasn't boarded up, we sued the owner. And between all of those things, we acquired 18 houses and spent a million dollars to fix them. We found that the market followed us in, mostly rental investors, but they did some decent work to acquire blighted houses and fix them up and put families in them. And then we measured it. That was rare for us. And we measured what we thought, you know, reasonably scientifically using other studies and ratios and such to say, when we spent a million dollars, how much did we change the tax base ultimately? And we found that it was a $6 million kick from a $1 million investment. And with that $6 million kick, the city and county were going to realize $112,000 in, it was like a, a 12% return on our investment. It wasn't even city money, it was state money. But, um, and it just showed that it, basically we were trying to prove that strategically investing in blight remediation is, is not only the right thing to do and good for neighbors and neighborhoods, but it's also good business for the city and county. And we- yeah, I think that's very important because there are... I think because CDCs are nonprofits, sometimes there's a tendency to think of them as sort of charitable organizations. We're not a charity. Well, I know that they're they're really nonprofit real estate developers, and to the extent that um, there's a return to the organization as well as to the tax rolls, that's important, and then that helps fund other projects in the future. We we are as you've hinted at. We're a very business-like nonprofit, and to do this kind of of work, you really have to. And we, we hadn't really gotten into the thing that one of the reasons for our stability and financial success is that for a long time, we couldn't sell houses here. So we acquired them, and we, we fixed them, and we rented them. So we currently own 115 rental houses that we manage in-house, and we earn a lot of our own money from that. We, so we're less dependent on government largesse than many nonprofits and we feel extremely fortunate in this pandemic age to be in that position to where we know we're going to be here for a while. Well, I was going to ask you just as a little bit of a digression, how are the families in your rental housing um how are they dealing with the pan- pandemic and has it affected your business at all? You know, it's affected it quite a bit less than anticipated. Um I think there's different reasons for that. Um, we have a rental manager named Michelle who is just really, really good at her job. And so she picks tenants who are, are really good tenants. Um, and we treat our tenants really well. 
and they simply aren't. Um, I mean, these are low and usually very low income uh, uh, families, and they're just not trying to take advantage of it. They're just not hustling, and we're not having to argue about it. So our our non payment rates are something like five percent less than before the pandemic. So, Steve, before I let you go, I wanted to just talk a little bit about your work in public policy and advocacy. There's so many policy barriers to redevelopment in ways that public policy impacts neighborhoods, often in a negative way. Can you identify a couple of the the policies that you think are particularly make your work difficult and then also reflect on a couple of things that have improved from a policy perspective since you've been working in community development? Yeah, well, if you're at this for a long time, you realize that simply working in the trenches in a neighborhood, it's not enough. Um, because as you said, Emily, there are, are great systemic barriers that are both evident and, and not so evident that, that keep your work from, from being able to progress. You know, and I almost couldn't give you the whole list, but um, you know, a number of us and, you know, me and my colleagues around the city, one of the things we say is that there's, there's great lip service given to the work that we do. And we've done an awful lot of, you know, recognition for the work that we do. And that's appreciated. But the honest truth is, the honest truth is, is that we as a country and as a culture do not invest the money that it takes uh, in, in order to, to write this stuff. And, and again, I don't think it's charity. I think if we do it right, it's actually an incredible investment, which would make our city and our, and our whole tax base and et cetera, far healthier. But we just don't do it. Give you another example. You know, the money that we do get, it's all limited to um, families that are low income or or below. Um, you won't find a single person who thinks that we're supposed to create economically segregated neighborhoods here. Not to speak of racially segregated, but we can't sell or rent our houses uh, to folks who are uh, who are not low income and. You know, I, I disagree. It doesn't with, make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. Um, I understand the format. I mean, the, the feds, in a sense, said, well, we want the aid to go to the right folks, but there should be a waiver, in a sense, for 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 this is a officially a very low income community. It's fifty eight percentile of me of Memphis median, and there there should be a caveat that says if you're going into a very low income neighborhood and somebody making ninety grand a year wants to move into that neighborhood, we should damn well encourage that. In terms of some progress that we, you know, we haven't we haven't made enough progress, uh, and and doing policy work can be frustrating because, I mean, I'll give you an example. Neighbors like this are are rife with with predatory lenders, of course, you know, payday lenders and the like, and you know, we we've tried to to do something about these loans that are are three four hundred you know annual percent, and we never get anywhere. Why do we get nowhere? Because those lenders, along with the pawn shops and that whole industry, um, they all give campaign contributions to everyone. And so every single legislator we've ever run into is beholden to these folks and won't won't be a vote in favor of limiting uh, predatory lending. So we don't always make the success we like. Um, but as, as as we've mentioned, you know, the Neighborhood Preservation Act is a is a, a work in progress that has been put into place really by primarily by Memphis lawyers and 
friends of theirs like like us, um, that is is provided a framework to try to go after unneglected properties and when negligent property owners won't deal with them to be able to appoint entities like us as receivers to be able to bring those properties back up and put them into use. Well, in case our listeners aren't familiar with Neighborhood Preservation Act, which they might well not be, before the Neighborhood Preservation Act got adopted at the state level, there was almost nothing you could do about a blighted property if the owner did not want to fix it up. Fix it up. So it's it's the act, and then some amendments have allowed stakeholders like the government or other nearby property owners to take legal action, essentially forcing property owners to fix up their property or to sell it or redevelop it. And it hasn't always worked. There's certainly improvements to be made, but I think most people, most community developers would say that it was a step in the right direction. Most of the properties that we throw into that NPA pipeline um, don't go to receivership. It, it stimulates the existing owner to either fix it or softens them up to be willing to sell it to somebody else so they'll fix it. So it has has all levels of benefit, which are multiple and good. And, and I also wanted to put put a plug in for the the really fledgling Memphis House, Affordable Housing Trust Fund, HTF. And it's not what it should be. Um, and our sister cities like Louisville or St. Louis or any number, they, they have housing trust funds that are far more robust. But uh, last year, we were, we were able to set up a mechanism, again, back to the thought of, of there's simply not enough money to do the work that, that we're called on to do. Well, I think for those funds to really be successful, as you said, there needs to be some kind of dedicated funding yeah. stream, yeah. like like a, a percentage of a real estate transfer tax. And I think one of the key takeaways, which I don't think you mentioned, is that Memphis the local Memphis government invests very little in neighborhood community development. There's a lot of money that's passed through from the federal and state levels um, that comes through the housing community development. And there are some local grants, but there's not a lot of funding, local funding for this work. And so a housing trust fund allows again, a carve out of a certain amount of money to go into a fund. So there's a continual replenished funding stream. So you and the other community developers don't have to go hat in hand every year to local government and be the and be the victim of, of budget cycles like we're in right now. You know, people often wonder why the capacity even of a fairly functional agency like Fraser CDC isn't better. And we've come to realize one reason is that the funding is hit and miss. So how do you build an organizational infrastructure to do 100 houses a year? That's what you want to do. If the next year you only get money to do 15 houses and you you have to have some regularity of funding in order to build organizations that are robust enough to actually tackle the problems that exist like in these neighborhoods. So any Final words about what you're looking forward to in Fraser. I know you're transitioning out. You're leading a new initiative around community engagement. But what are your sort of hopes for the organization and where you hope the neighborhood will go? Well, um, you're right. First of all, that after 18 years, I'm not the exec anymore. And two months ago, we hired uh, Mr. Damon Williams uh, to be our executive director. And, and we're 
very pleased with how that's going. And I think he's a really smart and big thinker. And, and I think he's pretty aggressive and he's still getting his feet under him here. And it's harder in the pandemic for him to meet all of his 10,000 partners he needs to, to meet. But I, I really think he's looking to uh, up the scale of the work that we do. And I'd like to be able to help think about that, uh, to simply do houses and very possibly get into multifamily and the like. But I, th I think, um, you know, we also, as you mentioned, we, we've got this community engagement project called Fraser Connect. Very exciting. It was funded by the Mass Mutual Foundation. And it's really to bring communication to all 45,000 residents to be able to give access to all the things that are going on here to all the people that are here. Because often we just talk to the same people over and over so we're looking at models of how to do communication in low-income minority communities that really give people access to information. Um, we're going to be able to put some staff in place. A major component of that is sort of a corollary to help build small businesses. Uh, and we're, we're partnering with Epicenter on that, which is a local firm that is known for their expertise in that. And we're just now getting started. We've just appointed the uh, citizen-based advisor board that's going to really oversee that we're about to hire the connector who is the main staff person and it's, it's kind of a different a spin for us here at the cdc but it's really exciting and very cool and we're really grateful for the opportunity to do that well we've been talking to steve lockwood from fraser cdc our first memphis metropolis guest steve thank you for being here thank you for all of your good work and I look forward to seeing you in another capacity very soon. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis. I'm pleased to welcome uh, another guest to the show today, um, Charlie Santo, who is chair of the City and Regional Planning Department at the University of Memphis. And Charlie is going to be a regular commentator. I guess we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but anyway, welcome to the program, Charlie. Yeah, thanks, Emily. I'm thrilled to be here. Congratulations on the new show. This is kind of a big deal. Uh, I love the name, the Memphis Metropolis. So what what's this all about? What can your listeners uh, expect to, to hear during these shows? Well, it's, um, it's really... I mean, I'm, on the one hand, I'm determined to avoid jargon. You know, that's one of my jargon busting is one of my goals. Having said that, it's it's really all about the built environment, which I think is jargon. It's about everything that's that makes Memphis urban, all the sort of building blocks of the city, architecture, transportation, you know, historic preservation, neighborhoods, all really all the physical things that make a city a city and sort of celebrating all those, but diving in. And I want to lift up a lot of community stories, but also want to talk about real estate development. It's really a, it's really a show about everything I'm interested in. <laughs> so. I love it. I'm here for it. Well, when the station 
uh, got launched, I was just thinking, it's just something I want to do. I thought it would be fun and rewarding and get a chance to illuminate some of the things I'm interested in and some of the people, community leaders that are doing work that I admire. So the format of the show is going to be, the first half is going to be an interview on kind of a timely topic, one or two people talking about something that's going on, a plan, a planning process, a project. And then the second half is going to be a kind of a rotating series of visiting commentators like yourself who are going to come on. That's going to be a little more of a dialogue with me, I'm hoping, just talking, reflecting on what the guests have said, but also just talking about things that are going on in the community related to the urban environment that I think are interesting and the commenters think I'm interesting. So that's the format. It's a grand experiment. And I'm glad you're along for the ride, especially for this inaugural, this inaugural program. So, so let me jump into, um, really what's going on in your end. I mean, of course, it's we're living in an environment where it's COVID all the time. Everything's COVID. And not to minimize that, of course, but it's having a big impact on colleges and universities. And I don't think we've really talked about how it's affecting you know, your planning program. There's a Having been through that program, there's a lot of field work. There's a lot of community engagement. And so I don't even know if you're meeting in person. So tell me what's how it's impacting you. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of a big picture on how it's impacting higher ed in general, uh, and then sort of the, the micro level, how it's impacting us, um, how it's affecting us. It hasn't infected us yet. We're all we're all healthy. Um, but yeah, we are remote. We've been fully, the university's been fully remote since last March. So we came back from spring break, um, right when the this whole pandemic really sort of kicked off. And um, immediately moved to moved all of our classes online in the spring and did that sort of, you know, haphazardly. And then we had the summer to, to sort of plan for the fall. And, you know, I think back in March, we all thought, well, by August, everything will be back to normal again. And <laughs> we'll be back in the classroom. And we kind of thought that all the way up until the beginning of August, when we realized that, you know, the number of cases in a lot of places, including Shelby County was actually still going up and not going down. So, We've started the semester online. Um, the university just today actually has, is welcoming back some additional face-to-face classes. So we're in this phase reopening uh, and that's sort of on a voluntary process. So instructors have the option of requesting that their class be moved back to face-to-face. Uh, in the planning program, we're still doing everything online uh, and we kind of make these decisions as a community. So we're talking to the students about what they want to do and, um, for now, we're, we're going to continue to do it online. Um, but so I, I'm I'm coming to you live from a, an almost empty McCord Hall right now uh, on the campus of the U of M. And, you know, this is just in the past couple of weeks, I've been trying to get out of the house a little bit more regularly because the house is currently serving as White Station High School for a, a senior and a sophomore. I, I bet. <laughs> And it's also, you know, home to three dogs who want to bark at anything that's moving outside. And I think our neighbors across the street um, get their yard cut like twice a week for some reason. So <laughs> it can be a, a little hectic. Um, 
But, you know, like you said, I, I, I know that, uh, you know, this is a, a serious pandemic situation. You know, we've got over 200,000 deaths in the U.S. and a million deaths worldwide. And anything that I'm going to complain about right here is is extremely trivial in, in light of all that. But Well, you don't, doesn't sound like you're complaining at all. And But what about studio classes where people are coming together in more of a hands-on? How does that translate to the to the online. Yeah. It's so we, we have a, we do have a comp studio class this semester. Um, they're actually working with the office of comprehensive planning. Uh, they're doing some planning work in South Memphis, a small area plan as a follow-up to Memphis 3.0. Um, and the class, you know, they've broken it up into, we actually have two instructors teaching it. Um, and they've got different focus areas for students. So they're able to meet separately with their focus area students We'll be working with the city to do some virtual interfaces for community engagement, um, but it's a, it's a real challenge. I mean, it's a, it, you know this pandemic has sort of laid bare some of the challenges that cities like Memphis face in terms of access uh, to the internet and the digital divide. Um, and so that, as a kind of an aside, that's something that we're also working on in the School of Urban Affairs and Public Policy is trying to help our community address that digital divide. So. I've got some some faculty partners in social work, and we're working with StartCo and KnowledgeQuest and Urban Strategies in South Memphis in the South City area. Um, and this kind of you know it's a much bigger plan. HCD is involved, housing and community development for the city is involved, and we're trying to expand broadband access in that area. But at the same time, you know we can't just expand broadband access and give. Um, Shelby County school students' computers and think that they've got the problem solved. There's some a learning curve uh, that goes along with that. So we are using some social work students who are working as digital ambassadors or, or interns and, and working with households assigned through Knowledge Quest and Urban Strategies uh, to go and provide training uh, to the to households in those areas. So, you know, recognizing that those challenges exist and trying to find ways to work with community partners to address them. So that's something I think that's that's positive that's coming out of this. That we're all looking for silver linings. That sounds that's um, sounds like a great project. Definitely want to hear more about that. Also, on kind of a related subject, I'm hoping to do a program fairly soon on community engagement in the era of COVID, mm-hmm. and because there's really and really lifting up a couple of examples of neighborhood-based organizations that have moved things online very successfully, setting aside the digital divide issues for the moment. And um, so hopefully we can, I'd love to, you know, hear your additional perspectives on that. So maybe we'll try to connect so you can be the commentator when I have them on, because um, there's some good things going on here uh, in the community on that, that I want to talk a little bit more about. Yeah, so I'd, I'd love to hear more about people that are doing it well, because it's not easy. <laughs> well, and this is the ones I'm thinking about are not so much in low income neighborhoods, but still, I mean, it's a, ch- it's a challenge for sure. So, um, so I want to turn the turn to a different subject. You know, Steve Lockwood was just on earlier mm-hmm. and I'm talking about his career and community development and his time in Frazier and just wanted to get your perspectives on a couple of things that he said that I think were kind of interesting. You know, Steve 
joined the CDC industry very early in its history. He worked at VECA CDC when they were one of the first. He was very involved in Cooper Young Development Corporation. Of course, he's been at Fraser for many years. And there were some players there now that were there then, but the industry has changed a lot since then. And, you know, you're pretty close to the CDC world. I know since you've been here, you've been involved with Community Development Council now knows building Memphis. So I was just wondering, and of course, in your in your role as uh, with city and regional planning, you have opportunities to work with a number of organizations. So just didn't know if you had any insights. I'm not I'm not completely objective, obviously, <laughs> since I was with building Memphis for many years. I'm very close to it. Just but and you're a little bit more of an outsider. Yeah. So just wanted to hear what you thought about that. Yeah, yeah, about how the the industry has sort of changed over time. Yeah, and I, you know, I also before I got into academia in my 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 previous life, I, I worked uh, with CDCs in, in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, so I worked as a as a neighborhood planner um, and worked very closely with neighborhood organizations and community development corporations. Um, so it's part of my my background. Um, but yeah, I mean, first I want to say what a treat it was listening to, to Steve talk about his time in Memphis in the community development industry. I actually learned a lot of things actually about his career that I wasn't aware of. Um, and I really liked the way that he talked about the role of the CDC as correcting for what the market is not providing in a neighborhood. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really powerful way to think about it. Uh, but yeah, in the, so I've been here 15 years, um, and there's been a lot of change in the world of community development uh, in Memphis. You know, so of course there are high capacity CDCs that have been functioning full steam for decades, like the Fraser CDC. Um, and we also have some recently, you know, recently emerged CDCs that are doing great things, like the Heights CDC, and then organizations that have phased themselves out, like like Cooper Young. Um, but I would say that this the industry is is definitely more robust now. Uh, like as Steve mentioned, you know we have CDCs running grocery stores and, and charter schools, and not just rehabbing a handful of houses. Uh, so there's definitely big changes there. Uh, but I, you know I think in in the big picture, in terms of community development and and, and planning, and I think that the, the state of community development kind of goes hand in hand with the state of city planning. Um, I think Memphis is is still building. It's hard work. Uh, there's a lot of systemic things that get in the way, um, you know. And if you look at the the history of planning in the U.S., um, there's the, the the pursuit of the common good. There's a lot of structural challenges, and it's not not just Memphis; it's, it's all cities. So, you know, in the U.S. planning and by extension, community development have been really tied to a a, a pro pro growth agenda that favors real estate development interests. Uh, in a lot of ways, planning has been complicit in, in promoting sprawl and, and consequent disinvestment in inner city neighborhoods. For sure. Um, but I think I think we're in a different place now in Memphis than we were 15 years ago. I mean, if you think about when I came here in 2005, that was sort of the, the height of what I think we all have to recognize those who are kind of in the know is this was the Robert Lipscomb era, right? Yes, I mean, it was very <laughs> much so. Had been and would be for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, it's a, this very powerful bureaucrat who, for nearly twenty years, was the director of both the city's division of housing and community development and the housing authority in charge of public housing. At one point, also the city's chief financial officer. 
um, you know, some my outsider perspective viewing that coming in and, and just sort of on the sidelines for, for a number of years is that there's a lot of centralized power there and, and someone who kind of acted as a gatekeeper and kind of closely held those resources focused a lot on those real estate interests and things like hope six free developments and, and big developments like that and did very little to, to give capacity to community development corporations working in neighborhoods across the city. Um, and we're not in that place anymore. I think that is, that has shifted some, um, maybe a lot. And I think that, you know, curiously, I think a lot of that shift happened as a result of the, the last recession. You know, so after that 2008 recession, a lot of the folks in the community development industry with support from the philanthropic community got together and, and, you know, thought about a, a different way to approach this and launched that greater Memphis neighborhoods plan, which led to pri- reprioritizing how we approach community development led to the creation of the intermediary community lift. Uh, then at the same time you had recession related stimulus funds that supported the development of the mid South regional Greenprint plan which, well, and and um, and federal neighborhood stabilization funds that really contributed in Fraser and other places to some important redevelopment. Yeah, yeah. You so you had this recession that you know put a, an extra hardship on a lot of these already declining places, but also caused people to think differently um, and approach community development differently, and then injected some resources in different ways. And I think, you know, after the green print plan, that became a demonstration that planning can work and is important. And it brought some new allies, um, in, in some cases, unexpected allies like the Chamber of Commerce and the business community from Memphis Tomorrow um, and the philanthropic community that ended up being the, the funding mechanism behind the, the rebirth of comprehensive planning in, in support of Memphis 3.0. Um, so it's a different landscape now for sure than it was. Well, there's very much a culture of planning now, which there wasn't for a long time, which is that that's a, that's very important. And, um, I completely agree with you and the, um, as well, the, the federal investments and the, the, we've had a change in political leadership since then, both at the elected but at the appointed level. I think people are in those positions that understand the work and understand the players and what they're and and have more of a sensitivity to the neighborhoods and what they need. But that actually is kind of a good transition to my I had another question about Steve's interview. When I was reflecting about it, I was and we talked, he and I talked about this a little bit about how I asked him when he got there, if it was sort of a shock having worked in these urban neighborhoods and being in a very much a suburban style development. And it occurred to me that even now, despite these gains we've talked about, we're, we're asking, we're trying to use the same toolbox for Klondike Smoky City and Fraser. And I think there's 30,000 people who live in Fraser. It's very spread out, yeah. even with all of Steve's m- many accomplishments working with his board and his staff. The And they've had some big impacts. It's still difficult to sort of target and see the difference of your work. And just in what do you think, 
what would a different toolbox look like or what am I right that there shouldn't, we shouldn't ask suburban, we've got so many suburban neighborhoods, Hickory Hill, mm-hmm. Whitehaven, Frazier, suburban style in their development. We've got so many of those. And should there be a sep- should there be a strategy to address their issues that's separate from the urban, the, the, the purely urban strategy? Yeah. I mean, probably, right. It's, it's a, uh... It's a legacy of past planning mistakes, um, you know. So when I talked, when I say that that planning has been complicit in sprawl, I mean, I think that was evident in Memphis, you know. So our, our partly the push from city leaders is to is that pro growth real estate development agenda because that means tax base, uh, and cities need to focus on increasing that tax base because every city is competing with every other city for. Uh, for population and for mobile capital, and you have to focus on that. Um, but the other approach that Memphis has taken over the decades is to chase after tax base via annexation. And so the city has just, you know, 70s, 80s, just drastically increased in in acreage, in, in square mileage, to the point where the city of Memphis is now geographically the same size as Cleveland, Philadelphia, St. Louis, and Boston combined. Um, which is insane when you think about trying to provide I mean, we don't have the population of any of one of those places, but we have the the land area of four of them. Um, So yeah, it makes it, it makes it difficult uh, to provide a standard response to planning issues when you have so many different types of neighborhoods, um, different types of neighborhoods that are in need of redevelopment or stabilization. Um, and I talk about this, you know, one of the problems that that creates that geographic size is, is it exacerbates the connection between transportation and poverty. Um, in a city that big, it's difficult to provide adequate uh, public transit service. And so, you know, we think about public transit not being all that good in Memphis. I think the typical reaction is, well, it's a, that's a matter problem. They're not doing their job. But if you start to think about it, Matter really has a Memphis problem in trying to serve a community that, as low density as we are and as large as we are. Um, so we yeah, that's well put. I agree with that. Yeah, and that you know that that then connects to everything else. So I you know I think we do need to think about different tools for different places. I don't know what those tools are. I don't know if more CDCs is the answer. Um, I know that we do have some high capacity CDCs that have shown an ability to work beyond a single neighborhood geography, uh, like United Housing and the works. Um, and so, you know, maybe expanding the, the efforts of organizations that can, can work across multiple geographies is one approach. And, but I think ultimately what we need related to this is a, is a more robust infrastructure for real public participation and public voice. Um, and we don't, we haven't really had that, uh, in Memphis, um, and it's something that is sort of geographically tied where there's representation from a certain geography that's made up of smaller sub geographies and we don't have a, we don't have an infrastructure like that. Well, that's something I want to, I really want to talk about frequently on this program because that's something that's near and dear to my heart. And Steve did actually and he mentions this at the end, got a very generous grant from Mass Mutual that's going to help them build out 
a neighborhood-based, you know, communication and engagement system. So I think that's going to be really great for Frazier. It is such a big neighborhood. So last question, Charlie, we were talking about the census and how important it is for everyone to fill out their census form. And I know people can understand that census is important in terms of representation, that, you know, people lose representation in Congress if your population goes down, how very important it is. But what's the connection between the census and the things we've been talking about today? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I have a, a census soapbox. Um, it's really central to the work that I do. Just climb on, buddy. <laughs> I'm there with you. And it may, may it might not be a very controversial soapbox, but uh, I want to take every opportunity I can. I'm going to use my platform uh, and I want to remind people to complete your census. Um, you know, there's a, normally the census we're doing the decennial census now, the 2020 census. Normally that would have wrapped in April, but there's this pandemic going on right now. So we've extended that until the end of October. So you have until the end of October to complete it, do it. You can do it online, go to census.gov. It takes five minutes. There's really three questions that they ask, you know, you know your age, your race, your sex. It's not that hard, but it's super important. Um, yes, it's important for representation. It determines who gets how much political power in Congress and in the States. You know, we do still have the, the vestiges of a representative democracy. Um, those 435 seats in the House of Representatives are apportioned among states by population. That's determined by the census. But a lot of what we're talking about is the funding that comes to cities from the federal government. Things for funding for housing and community development. All of that stuff is based on a formula that uses census counts as well. And there's always a risk of, of undercount in communities that have marginalized populations. That risk is even greater now. Um, so make sure you're counted, make sure your relatives are counted, your neighbors are counted, um, and then go out and vote because that decennial census count, once it's delivered, states are required to redraw their congressional districts so that each district represents roughly an equal number of people. And it's the state legislators, state legislators who redraw those lines. And those lines can be drawn in a way that benefits one political party over another. So when people go out and vote in the 2020 election, they're not just voting for who's going to be president. They're, they're also having a voice in determining the, the partisan makeup of, of Congress until 2030. So go out and vote uh, and fill out your census. I agree wholeheartedly to both of those things. So that's a great, I think that's a great sort of capstone to our discussion today. So um, I've been talking to Charlie Santo, who's chair of the city and regional planning department at University of Memphis. If you like what you heard today, Memphis Metropolis is going to air every Monday at one. Uh, but Charlie's going to be back. He's going to be one of our regular commentators. And so if you tune back in in a couple of weeks, you'll get to hear him again, hear more of our conversation. So thanks for joining me, Charlie. And See everybody next week. All right. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. The show airs every Monday at 1, so I hope you'll check back next week. And stay tuned for Memphis Underground, coming up next. <laughs>